coming up this hour, a change for churches by the governor. Uh, And then we're going to talk again about face masks all coming up here on The Common Good. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on what appears to be a beautiful, sunny Friday afternoon. In fact, Ian, I think it's so nice that you said again from the outside, you're doing this outside today? Yeah, I'm on the patio right now. Uh, My boys are currently napping, so fingers crossed. I mean, it could make for good radio, though, if it's like me on the patio and then them just screaming and giggling in the background. I I feel like people would find that endearing, no? I think so. I mean... Yeah, I would. I would find it endearing. Let just me go wake kids. up. Let me go wake them up. Then we'll find out. Oh, waking up children could be even better. That just Ooh. see how that goes. Carry your microphone with you into there. <laughs> Does that come with a therapy bill? I'm sure no. they wouldn't mind that at all. <laughs> oh man. Well, anyway, find us on Facebook, Common Good Radio Show, online, eleven sixty hope dot com, and uh, podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, obviously, the major story of the day uh, is out of Minneapolis, and we're going to tackle that for a couple segments here in the second hour after the five o'clock hour, uh, a story that just keeps on moving and keeps on changing. Uh, so we're going to invest some time in that uh, here at the top of the show. I wanted to open with some coronavirus, some COVID-19 pandemic stuff, specifically a major change that happened here in Illinois. You know, today. We go from phase two to phase three uh, in Naperville. Were you in Naperville? Did they have they set uh, up all sorts of outdoor seating and changed everything downtown for you guys? Yeah, downtown Naperville looks a little bit like when we do festivals down there yeah. with sort of the, you know, those barrier gates and some restaurants have. It's interesting because a couple of these places clearly were not prepared for an outdoor seating option. So, like, I've had people sending me photos of what just looks like. It looks like the restaurant owner just drove by any local dump and just grabbed whatever (laughs) chair or table-like thing they could find. Like some of the – it's so interesting for a place like Naperville too because some some places already had a setup. They already had an infrastructure or, you know, furniture. And other places, they're like, whatever, just lawn chairs, tree stumps, whatever. Just put it out there. That's so funny. Downers is the same way. Downers Grove here where I live. Uh, yesterday, my wife came home. And she's like, oh, there's all sorts of barricades downtown. And I was like, what? Oh, now they can be outside. And I've mm-hmm. seen people already posting pictures from eating lunch downtown. And uh, so it feels like some things are changing here in Downers Grove, obviously everywhere. But here in Downers Grove, uh, fields are opening up. Other things are opening up. And so it does feel at least where I am. It feels like a big shift has happened. A big change has happened. Yeah. Uh, but one of the big areas and uh, very close to probably a lot of people listening to this station, but also especially you and I as pastors, is that kind of maybe it was happening behind the scenes. But for me, I was really caught off guard last night when I started getting report uh, texts from people basically saying that Governor Pritzker had basically changed uh, his kind of stance towards churches. Uh, it, it really came out that there were. Um, some suits going to the United States Supreme Court uh, and that Justice Kavanaugh had ordered Pritzker to respond by 8 p.m. And just before the deadline, Governor Pritzker made a bunch of changes. And here's basically the major change is he issued, quote, guidelines for houses of worship, but none of which are mandatory. And to so to put that another way, churches can now 
kind of do what they want. Uh, now they'll be looked down upon, but they're not going to face any sort of um, punishment uh, depending on what they do. Uh, were you a surprised by this when you heard this? And does it change anything for you and your mindset? Uh, it didn't surprise me. I feel like I had heard grumblings of something like this come down the pipe. Yeah, for at least a few days. Um, there's, it's weird even geographically for us here in Illinois because, you know, like Wisconsin saw its deadliest day yesterday since reopening with like a confirmed, I think it was like 662 new cases. Um, so to be geographically that close to a state that has kind of navigated significantly differently than we have here in Illinois. It's bizarre because there's a whole, there's a whole lot of things kind of swirling in my head. On one hand, you think, great, that's a, that's a victory for the church. Uh, should the state really be bringing down mandates on, on religious expression? And shouldn't they have, you know, the, the autonomy enough to gather if they want, but then you and I have been doing this show long enough. And, you know, during this pandemic, we've heard a number of stories across the country where churches were um, kind of blatantly disregarding any sense of caution and we're endangering not only their congregation, but other people in their community. So you see this this back and forth. I've been texting with a bunch of pastor friends today, and it looks like the vast majority of them are just still kind of staying the course. Like it doesn't actually change that much for them. But uh, like I did, I, I a buddy, it was a thread of pastors, and they said, are you guys going to try to reopen next week? And one of them said, heck no. If you read the IDPH recommendations, they say no public singing and no public recitation, no communion unless individual, no potlucks, no coffee, no food. So what's left? Preaching and performance, which parenthetically says worship with no one else singing. <laughs> so he later was commenting, they do say that drive-in services seem to be the safest. Uh, we're considering a couple of outdoor services over the summer and then reopening the building maybe in late August. So that tends to be the general vibe that most pastors I'm connecting with in the area are going with. I don't know if you're hearing anything different. Uh, not totally. I haven't talked to a ton of my friends who, since this came out, but even what you said there with the singing and that, what makes this interesting, you said the IDPH says the Illinois Department of Public Health is, uh, it, it's really going to be interesting because those are just guidelines now. And so do people listen to guidelines? And what's been interesting is I had to remind somebody that I was talking to, like, this is still not an issue of the church and the government. It's still an issue of a virus. Like, that's still what we need to be having a conversation about here. Uh, so I have, uh, I think I've heard from a couple of people that I think they'll be quicker to open up. Other people not. Uh, I do think it also depends on the size of your church. Like, um, you know, what can you do safely and not safely? Um, yeah, I'm curious. So was anybody on your thread like we're doing something Next week, next no, month, we're going no, to come. Not, not yet. No, not yet. Mm. Okay. That's interesting. What do you think will, um, uh, as these are now just guidelines, do you expect to hear of a lot of churches opening up even this weekend? What would your expectation be? Yeah, I don't, I mean, in my most uh, pessimistic, I think that ch churches in some ways are as susceptible to sort of like peer pressure as anybody is. So my guess is, even if the vast majority are being extra cautious now, I think, again, a lot of this depends on a ton of factors. But if we're seeing churches that are, you know, kind of, quote, early adopters and they're gathering and nothing seems to be going all that wrong, I could see a whole lot more. And if you do like bell curve research, that's, you know, pretty much in line 
with like where the the majority of us live, even people in leadership. So I, I have a feeling if it goes well, people, churches, leaders might be willing to reopen earlier than what they're stating right now. But I think we do need to take at least some cautions from other neighboring states that have reopened way earlier than we have or had much looser guidelines because it does seem like some of those states are trending in really negative directions. And that, I think, should inform our decisions in the present. Yeah, we're going to look at some of those stats uh, in the next segment. One thing that we are doing, in fact, just before hopping on the show here, is uh, we I, I wrote and sent out a survey to our people because I'm really curious just where our people are at. Like, I, I, Instead of guessing, I just want to go, OK, let's find out what's going on. That's not going to determine what we do. But as I told our elders, I said, I just kind of want to know where people are at, what they're thinking right now. So we'll see. We'll see how that comes back. And will that will that determine your decisions going forward based on how no. that poll comes back? No, it won't determine it. It'll inform it, uh, obviously. Just uh, I think what everyone I've known some other pastors who've done surveys and what they have found is people aren't itching to get back <laughs> is what they have mm. found in the surveys. Interesting. Uh, but I'm just curious to see what our people have got to say. Uh, coming up next, some stats that came out yesterday uh, around the COVID-19 pandemic. And let's talk a little bit more about face masks coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. <laughs> Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're having a great Friday. Looking forward to a good weekend. Uh, you can find us a bunch of different places. Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can find us online, 1160hope.com and our podcast. Get your podcast Anywhere you can find podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. Those reviews really do help us, and um, yeah, they really do uh, help us. And we love to get feedback, whether it be on Facebook or through the podcast from our listeners. Well, going to talk uh, about some interesting stats and also where do we find our information? How do we parse everything we're reading around COVID-19. But before we do that, Ian is going to tell us again about Thrivent. I'm going to tell you some different information. So if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you've probably heard this name by now. Thrivent is a Fortune 500 non-for-profit. They've been around, get this, more than 100 years. You know those uh, restaurants or organizations that are like making boots since 1984. You're like, that's nothing. They've been around for more than a, de- more than a decade, more than a century. I know my words. Anyway... <laughs> I've been a Thrivent member for like seven or eight years. I love them. I love their mission. You can learn more at Thrivent.com. But if you're looking for a career change or even just interested in the possibility of one, Thrivent.com slash careers is a great place to go. And you don't even need to have a background in finance. You just got to like coming alongside people, helping people be wise with money. And the other thing that I've been really grateful for is in the midst of all this uncertainty, they've been providing a lot of really wonderful like webinar content. Some of it's live. Some of it's pre-recorded. But uh, we've been sharing a lot of that to our Facebook page. You can also learn more on their Facebook page. But it's just one of the many ways that they're giving back. And a lot of these resources are completely for free. So I cannot encourage you enough to head on over to Thrivent.com today. Absolutely. They've been a great partner for the show that we're very thankful for. Uh, So I read this tweet last night. uh, And so I just want to read it for everybody and read it for you. And uh, tell me, if what do you do with this? How do you process these numbers? This is from ABC News. Uh, one of their correspondents, Eric Strauss, says, At ABC, 
looked at 21 states that eased restrictions May 4th or earlier. So these were the early, early people of easing restrictions that we're now doing here in Illinois. And we found no major increase in hospitalizations, deaths, or percentage of people testing positive in any of them. Uh, and here's the list of the states. This is going to test my ability with uh, with just the two letters of a state. But uh, South Carolina, Montana, Georgia, Mississippi, uh, South Dakota, Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Indiana, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Wyoming, Kansas, Florida, Indiana, uh, Missouri, uh, Nebraska, and Ohio. So they looked at those 21 states. They all opened earlier than anybody else, and they found no major increase in hospitalizations, deaths, or percent of people testing positive in any of them. Uh so let me just ask this question. Does that surprise you when you hear that? I mean, it surprises me a little bit. You know, it's been really, really strange doing this show because I feel like every day you and I are reading yeah. almost contradictory research or reporting or findings and often from very reputable sources. I mean, they're not all, you know, getpocket.com or whatever we were reading from <laughs> yesterday. But like we're not we're not getting this information from, you know, <laughs> someone blogging in their mom's basement. Like, That's right. it's really, really bizarre how contradictory, and we'll talk even a little bit later about this whole mask scenario, how yeah. it makes total sense why people will be reading almost side by side completely different information about what we need to be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, what's helpful, what's harmful. I, I don't know. It, it, seems, it seems almost inevitable that everyone's head right now would be spinning at least a little bit. Totally. Uh, the way I look at it, they, uh, the guy here juxtaposes it with an article from The Atlantic on April 30th in which they called Georgia its experiment in human sacrifice hmm. uh, and calling them guinea pigs and uh, basically saying these states kind of went early. And, you know, you can read this from many different directions, but I'm with you. Uh, when, when I read stats like this, it does two things to me. It goes, I don't know who to trust or what to trust or, again, ABC, very reputable. Um, and two, if I'm going to be bluntly honest, it makes me be like, okay, maybe, uh, uh, maybe it's time to loosen things. And that could be dangerous. Like that could be dangerous to have that because then you even said Wisconsin yesterday, uh, they opened up, uh, from their Supreme court, what, maybe two or three weeks ago. Uh, and they're seeing a rise in the COVID-19 going on in their state. And so it does become really difficult as to go to kind of say, uh, what do I believe? What do I do? And so I guess I would ask you, uh, not just what do you believe, but how at all does it affect how you live your day to day? Well, I mean, it's a it's a good lesson in not needing to be the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm. Like I uh, I've done more listening than I have in a long time, which is my fault. Like that's I should be doing a whole lot more of that just in general. But like I do feel a certain weight of responsibility, not just as a leader in the church, but wanting to like steward this show well and not be like, Hey, this random article came across my Twitter. Let's read it. Like really feeling yeah. a burden and a weight to be balanced, but also like diligent to be robust yeah. and thorough in our, in our research and what we're finding. And a lot of times, you know, the person that shared it, if it's something that you find on your feed or whatever, it's someone you can follow up with and say, Hey, I read the thing you shared and, I'm not totally sure I understand this part or that part. And a lot of times, especially, you know, the people that are way more 
invested or involved or just bigger brains than I could ever dream to have can kind of help unpack it a little bit. So I've been like really yeah. trying to like lean on people in my life that I've leaned on for insight and wisdom in complicated areas for years anyway, and just simply apply the same principle here. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's wisdom right there to say, who can I trust that I trusted before this? Right, <laughs> that I exactly. trusted when there wasn't a pandemic going around. And you referenced this article at Fox News uh, where it says the World Health Organization came out with new guidance. Healthy people should wear masks only when taking care of coronavirus patients. Uh, so they went on to say the World Health Organization is recommending healthy people, including those who don't exhibit COVID-19 symptoms, only wear masks when taking care of someone infected with the contagion. A sharp contrast from the advice given by the American public health officials who recommend wearing a mask in public. Uh, the, uh, April Baller, a uh, public health specialist for the World Health Organization, said this in a video. If you do not have any respiratory symptoms, such as fever, cough, or runny nose, you do not need to wear a mask. Masks should only, uh, masks should only be used by healthcare workers, caretakers, or by people who are sick with symptoms of fever and cough. The recommendation, though, has not changed and differs from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which urges individuals to wear a mask or face covering in public, regardless of infection or not, to limit the spread of the virus. So here you have two of the leading worldwide health organizations not even saying the same thing, in fact, saying contradictory things. Um and, and, and again, it, I bring that up to say it really does leave you going with, I don't know what to do. Now, in this case, I'll right. keep wearing a mask because right. uh, it seems like go more conservative in this and that's wisdom. But it, you could understand why people would read both of these and be like, forget that. I'm done with a mask. Well, and I read a thing in Newsweek this morning that Illinois is the only state to meet all federal criteria for reopening. Mm -hmm. And so that's they'll true. move to you know, phase three, which we were talking about. I didn't realize how many states had only passed one of the five criteria and had been open for a while. So, you know, it, it comes down to a lot of factors, right? Do you consider these five to be credible? Like you were saying, I'm going to still wear it because I want to be conservative. You probably would apply that same principle in general elsewhere. Is there any sense that you get of like, oh, yeah, but I'm going to get ridiculed or people are going to assume a certain camp of mine by wearing or not wearing? Or if you're like, no, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not worried about that scorn. It's just the, it's the smartest thing for me and my family. Yeah, I'm, I'm still good with it, but I, I could see the only time I felt that a little bit, and then I was like, oh, I'm going to bust through this, was I told you we went to a cabin in Wisconsin this weekend, way out in the woods. We were right. totally social distance, but we had to stop for gas in Wisconsin on the way home, uh, and there was not many masks to be found. And I was right. like, oh, they're all going to look, oh, wait a minute. No, now I really need a mask here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so we would love to know what you think. These are up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Somehow I found another article at Get Pocket. That's where we're going to go next. Oh, boy. Why is it so stressful to talk politics with people on the other side? We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, you can find us all sorts of different places. In fact, Ian, why don't you tell our people all the many places they can find us? Ooh, a change-up, Brian. Brian, I like yep. it. All right, let there me think. First place I think of, because I'm now middle-aged, is Facebook. You can go to the Common Good <laughs> Radio Show. There's a bunch of things called the Common Good, so you got to actually type in the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of the articles that we talk about. Plus, if you have suggestions for future shows, 
or guests or even just angles or topics, you can send us messages there. Plus, if you didn't know this already, reviewing and sharing that page actually really does help us out a whole lot to repost a lot of stuff. Plus, you can find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good on Twitter and Instagram at common good talk. Plus, I don't know if you know this, Brian. Nope. I won't even be coy. I know that you know this. Wherever it is you get podcasts, if you are a podcaster, subscribing, rating, and reviewing really, really does help us out a whole lot. And we don't say it enough, but sharing it does also help. Just sending it to a friend or posting it on social media, anything you're willing to do would be really, really helpful for us. What do you think the median age of a regular Facebook user is? You said now that you're middle-aged. I wonder what the, I wonder what the answer to that is. I mean, we have the Google machine. We could just look it up. You think they've got that? Okay. Yeah, you say what you're going to say, and I'll look it up. Well, I just I already have it. it. You ready? It's 40.5. Oh, wow. I'm old. I'm older. You Uh, are older. That's true. That's funny. Yeah, no, my 16-year-old, let's just say her and her friends are not on Facebook. And uh, I've come to learn it is for us older people. So Mm -hmm. Uh, there is something good that we're doing here at the station. During the coronavirus pandemic, we know that many businesses have had to close their doors or reduce their hours. But we also know there are still many businesses open and serving the public as best they can. If you are one of those people, if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. It's all one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form. We're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. It's totally free. No catch. Go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. I'm waiting just one of these days for you to like add a little bit, a little bit. I feel like you've really stuck to the, the letter of the law on that one. And I can you next time just do it from memory. How about that? What if I do thrive and then you do that one from memory? Uh, I've never actually read that one though. So I don't even I have like a mental imprint, but you hear it twice a day, every day. <laughs> nah, but, I, but I tune you out entirely though. So I haven't really that's heard it. I, that's what I was getting at. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be like, uh, we're doing something. We're doing something here at the station. <laughs> All right. So my new favorite website, getpocket.com. Wow. They've got uh, – I learned, by the way, that when I just click on uh, my browser, that is what comes up apparently. So, um, <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. Not, you, not you, that. You, you just learned that. <laughs> I explained that incorrectly. Uh, you know, like uh, recommended all of these different ones. And apparently that is the that is the site that does the recommending. So it doesn't say that's where it's from. But <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't explain technology so well. <laughs> I, I understand less now after that explanation. <laughs> Sadly, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> Are you using an abacus? What's happening over there? Sadly. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we're is just going to actually from go. your pocket. Is this what you're saying? This is a note in your <laughs> we're pocket. Just, we're just going to let this one go. I was half, <laughs> I was halfway through explaining that going, Oh man, this is going to end poorly. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. It's not like we're on the radio. So at this, at get pocket, they have this article. Why is it so stressful to talk politics with the other side? We can disagree with coworkers in meetings or argue about sports with friends, but politics seems to be an entirely different beast. So before getting into it, uh, what do you think of the premise? Do you believe this premise to be true? Yeah, I think this is something you and I have talked a lot about. And I, mm-hmm. I'm recalling an article that I think must have been like from a year or so ago. And this writer's premise was we don't realize how deeply embedded our identity is in our political leanings mm-hmm. or alignments. And 
maybe even allegiances. I think maybe for some people it's more than just an alignment. It's it's like an allegiance. And when you and again, I, I don't know if this is what the article is saying at all, but when you embed like your ontology with a particular party, then of course you're going to be extra defensive when someone disagrees yeah. with it because they're not just disagreeing with an ideology or a, an opinion. You're disagreeing with me. And I think that's probably part of why we see such a visceral back and forth from both sides. Absolutely. Uh, so he, the article begins, people disagree all the time, but not all disagreements lead to the same stress level. Hmm. So you can talk about basketball or your favorite sports team. You can argue about strategies at work. But political conversations, on the other hand, seem to have become especially challenging in recent years. Stories of tense Thanksgiving dinners and of Facebook friends being unfriended have become commonplace. So hmm. why does this happen? And here's what their research found out. Uh, Our research and related research in political psychology suggests two broad answers as to why this happens. First, Hmm. uh, our work shows that divisive topics, issues that are polarizing or on which there's no general society-wide consensus, evoke feelings of anxiety and threat. Hmm. It's simply considering these topics appears to put people on guard. Hmm. Second, research on moral conviction by psychologist uh, Linda Skitka and her colleagues suggest that attitudes linked to moral values can contribute to social distancing. In other words, if someone considers their position on an issue to be a question of right versus wrong or good versus evil, they're less likely to want to interact with a person who disagrees on that issue. That one's fascinating. Why don't you take one of those two? Which one of those jumps out to you? Yeah, the first one I hadn't really thought of, but makes a lot of sense. Feelings of anxiety and threat which I imagine would hit people to a different level of intensity based on their upbringing, their socioeconomic class, their gender, their race. I mean, I imagine all of those are factors at play. But if if for you, alignment at the very least to a particular system or infrastructure is what guarantees you the most likely trajectory of success or safety – that an opposition an opposition to that isn't like, well, we're having a friendly debate about two different dates regarding, you know, the Ottoman Empire or something. It's not arbitrary. It's like deeply embedded into like, no, if this opposition, this disagreement is actually very, very frightening to me because if you're right or if your position ends up winning over, that actually really could put me in a very vulnerable spot, which I would make sense then that people would be sort of tense with regards to engaging that. Yeah, the second one's interesting, too, about it being linked to moral values. So basically, if we disagree, uh, it's not just, oh, well, we just see this differently. It's it's your there's something wrong with your morality. There's right, some, you're right. on the wrong side or even you're evil. Um, that's a that is really deep right there. That's that uh, that can have some real repercussions to relationships. So would you suggest with like the last minute or so that we have here, would you suggest that people uh get better at talking about politics or avoid talking about politics with their family or with their friends? No, I think we absolutely need to get better. I think especially with family and friends, I think that has always really kind of bummed me out where it seems like the collective advice during Thanksgiving and Christmas is, hey, remember, do your part. Don't even bring it up. But I'm like, man, if we can't talk about this with family, what chance do we stand as a society? Like we shared an article a few months ago from Missio Alliance that was talking about our need, especially for Christians, to elevate the political discourse rather than disengage from it, which is tricky because there's if this article is right, you have to work through all the other feelings of like moral certainty and fear and anxiety. Like all those are very real things that take a lot of time. It's why I think sometimes Christians really struggle to have 
meaningful, deep conversations with people who disagree with them because of the moral component you mentioned. Like, well, any disagreement with me, I have the God card. And so how could, yeah. I, how could I possibly have a level of conversation with you? Ultimately, in my head, I'm convinced you're a pagan. So there's not and people sense that, you know, so, I, yeah, I think to your question, we need to get better at engaging and elevating. Yeah, so we want to hear what you've got to say. You can find this on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Why is it so stressful to talk politics? Coming up next, uh, I want to talk, uh, circle back to a story we did uh, multiple days about a week or two ago about uh, the death of Darren Patrick and a story that I read recently. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you joining us today. Uh, find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, Twitter, Instagram, at Common Good Talk. Get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review. And, uh, yeah, that does uh, help us out a lot. Any big plans this weekend, man? It's Friday. I almost forgot that it's Friday today. Any big plans for you guys? <laughs> Yeah, what is happening to you? You forgetting that it's Friday is tantamount to something scary. That's frightening. I know. I know. It, has, it has more to do with the stay-in orders than anything else. You guys, I get uh, that. Any, any good plans or just hoping to spend some nice family time outside? Well, I got date night on Saturday, so that's my Great. favorite day of the week now. So, I'm yeah, I'm looking forward to that. We um, The weather's supposed to be lovely. I'm at the point in my life, Brian, where just nice weather, where I can go <laughs> for a walk with my family is like the peak moment of my week. I never thought I would enjoy walking so much, like just having the opportunity. And it's fun, too, because my eldest is two and a half, and he's like starting to understand directions, and so sometimes we'll let him choose the route, and he's he's got a great imagination, so he's like seeing stuff that's not really there while we walk. So, yeah, that's that's the thing I'm most looking forward to, for sure. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. Yeah, I'm just hopeful for... Some nice weather. Like I said, the baseball fields and everything around Downers Grove opened up, so I might try to sneak out with my son. And a little bit of normalcy coming back. Obviously, still very abnormal times, but a little bit. It feels just a little bit more normal, so try to take advantage of it. A story we did uh, last week, two weeks ago, I think. I'm losing track of time, but uh, dealt with the the tragic death of uh, pastor, author Darren Patrick on May 7th. Uh, Darren Patrick, somebody we've talked a lot about over the 16 months of this show, had a uh, a well-publicized fall from his church, uh, the Journey Church in St. Louis, uh, went through or was in the process of a restoration process, uh, went on staff at Seacoast Church and was really seeming to uh, almost have a niche of helping other pastors who had fallen uh, to kind of help them through the process of growth and uh, and, and Darren Patrick was really honest about his struggles. And uh, he uh, tragically on May 7th died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound and uh, really has left a lot of the pastoral world and kind of the evangelical world reeling going, man, what happened? What happened? And uh, I found this article and I just found it so poignant. It was written at Religion News. It's entitled My Last Conversation with Darren Patrick. And why I found it so interesting was it was written by uh, Tony Jones. If you don't know Tony Jones, uh, he is the author uh, of several books, but he is most well known uh, for kind of he was at the forefront of that whole emergent church movement that uh, this is going to sound like like uh, the Crips and the Bloods. Right. But like the emergent church movement and kind of the the reform movement that Darren Patrick was at the forefront of. They were they were not really on the same page. Is it fair to put it that way? <laughs> 
not Crips and Bloods. No, that's not, <laughs> that is not a fair way to put it. <laughs> but not on the same page. We'll go with that. Yeah, I think the Crips and Bloods are a little more than not on the same page. <laughs> if, if I might be so bold. Fair, baby. We'll go with a different example. <laughs> I think the uh, same page is the perfect analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so Tony Jones uh, now writes this, just this poignant article about his last conversation. And I just wanted to – I don't know why I want to talk about this, because, I, but I feel like – it shows something about, um, you know, different theology still being able to be on the same page, but also gives a glimpse, something that Darren Patrick said near the end I found so uh, interesting. Uh, so they had a they had a relationship going back. Tony Jones shares it all the way back 2014. Uh, Darren Patrick texted him, say, hey, there's some things I'd like to apologize to you for. Uh, and he then goes off into the story about how they had been friends and kind of went theologically in different directions uh, he says on our call in 2014, he said he was sorry that we let theological disagreements get in the way of friendship. And I mm -hmm. said the same. We began to make plans to work together, even to co-host conferences. But mostly I marveled that he would reach out to me and ask for reconciliation. Just four months later, however, Darren's life, uh, no, Tony Jones's life was upended. Everything he'd worked for for over two decades, he writes, evaporated over a couple weeks. I received a text from Darren. Bro, I just read your statement. This is so heartbreaking. I can't imagine having to carry all this for many years. Let me know if I can help you. Mm. A year after that, I had the chance to return the favor as Darren had his own, quote, implosion, as he called it. Uh, he responded to my reaching out by apologizing for the hurt his sin was causing. I rem reminded him that we all sin. Uh, we each spent the next half decade rebuilding our lives. Uh, when Darren saw that I started a podcast, he said he wanted to be on that podcast. He then texted me uh, again. We're going to do that podcast. Really interested in telling my story about how the woods speak to me and my story of abuse from my dad, which almost made me a pantheist. And then he goes on to talk about the podcast that they did. Uh, and, and at the very end of this, uh, Darren Patrick says this. He says the most Tony Jones says the most intense moment came during the podcast, during our discussion of what we each lost celebrity and friends and how much smaller our social circle circles had become. Darren Patrick said, you know, I really want to spend the most time with the most with the people that are going to be at my funeral and specifically with those who will be carrying my casket. And uh, then he goes on to talk about how much he'll miss Darren Patrick. I found this to be such a poignant article at the very beginning, this concept of we let theology and theological disagreements break apart our friendship. I would guess uh, that that happens so often and how different it would be if we all took this. You know what? We can have theological disagreements and still remain friends. Well, let me ask you a question then. Are, are there in your mind theological differences where it would be necessary to break friendship? To break friendship? Yeah. Um, I would say there's probably theological disagreements that could strain friendship, but I don't think there's any that disqualify friendship. It might um, – it probably will strain friendship. What do you think? Do you think there's well, theological disagreements that – Yeah, what if, what if someone's theological conviction was outright that people of color are somehow less than – I think it's certainly theological disagreements can end friendships if you want them to. If you're like, I can't get over that, then, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
For sure. But I don't think theological disagreements, I don't think we have to theologically agree with all of our friends is the point uh, in every way. And so, yeah, you're right. There's certainly times where you go, I can't handle what you believe right now. Um, That's to each their own. Everybody makes those calls. Um, But I think that Tony Jones here is saying him and Darren Patrick never, uh, they, they just let their relationship go because yeah. they were on different sides of theological camps. And I do wonder right. how often we all do that. Yeah, I think we do that in relationship. I think we also do that with our intellect. I think we do that with the news we consume. We've talked a lot about, you know, confirmation bias and echo chambers. I think it's really a tragedy when it happens in friendships because it is sort of elevating doctrine over relationships. I think we actually are better doctrinal theological thinkers when we actually intentionally surround ourselves with people we disagree with, which also includes listening to different sermons or reading books of different perspectives. And I think it's all sort of part and parcel of the same problem where tribalism is the easiest, right? Like it's easiest to surround yourself with just a bunch of people who look and talk and act and think and believe just like you do, because it's, that's not, there is a natural kind of ebb and flow to that, a a pole, if you will. But Mm -hmm. I think we actually are are much better people, much more, not just well-rounded, but we get a better perspective of the heart of God when we're actually willing to sit consistently and intentionally at tables with people that we don't agree with. And obviously you can't maintain every friendship all the time everywhere, but to let, yeah, theological distinctions, I think run amok in between is probably not a good idea with the caveat. Maybe, like I said earlier with the man, maybe I would say if it's a matter of like human dignity, that's probably Mm -hmm. a much harder bridge to build, I think. But by and large, I I like his perspective and I think it's a really, it's a really timely post. I just think it's, it's, uh, that last part where Darren Patrick says, uh, you know, I've shared, I shared it yesterday, my propensity to wanting uh, to people pleasing and want everyone to like me. But Darren Patrick got to the point where he lost his celebrity, lost this. And he just says, I want to spend the most time with the people that mean the most to me. Right. will be at my funeral, he said, which is certainly poignant right now for uh, yeah. where, what, how things went with them. So just thought we'd share that. I thought it was powerful and it challenges us with our friendships, with our relationships uh, well, coming up next, we are going to spend a segment or two talking about all that's going up on up in Minneapolis and the uh, the awful tragedy around George Floyd. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about all that's going on up in Minneapolis around the tragic death of George Floyd. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are appreciative that you're joining us on this Friday afternoon. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And as always, you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. That really does help us, and we are grateful uh, for the many of you who've been listening via podcast, especially during this time of stay at home, uh, we have known that many of you have started listening on our podcast, and we really are grateful for that. Well, uh, rightfully so, dominating the news headlines uh, has been all that's been going on up in Minneapolis uh, around the tragic death of George Floyd. Uh, so let me just try to catch up, and there's probably been more that's happened even since we've started this. 
but let me remind people where we're at, and then we'll reflect on some things. Uh, George Floyd uh, was killed. He was uh, by a Minnesota police officer, four police officers, uh, but the Minneapolis police officers have all been fired, and the one uh, whose picture you've seen with his uh, with his knee on the neck of George Floyd that ultimately killed George Floyd today was arrested and charged with third degree man uh, murder and manslaughter. I believe it was. I'm doing this from memory. Uh, there have been a lot of protests and a lot of um, uh, violent protest or looting. But also uh, I was reading an article that is crazy that was suggesting that um, a lot of the people causing the problems may very well not even be from Minneapolis, uh, may not even be African-American. And so uh, a lot of questions about what's going on there. President Trump weighed in uh, about the looters overnight and uh, but did not weigh in at all about Minneapolis at his news conference today. And so there's just so much going on. But at the heart of it is still the tragedy uh, of a life lost. So. Uh, we are going to talk about that in segment one here. And then coming up after the break, we're on, I want to talk a little bit about who George Floyd was and what we can learn from his life. But Ian, as you continue to watch the news, continue to watch this progress, continue to uh, see things on social media. Uh, where are you at right now with all of this? Yeah, it's really heartbreaking to watch. And it feels like Every time I put the phone down or close the laptop and then open it back up, something new has happened, something awful has happened. I, I feel like the vast majority of my newsfeed has has surprisingly been really speaking out with regards to justice for Floyd. But then, you know, and a lot of people have been talking about this tweet from uh, Donald J. Trump. He said, these thugs are dishon- dishonoring the memory of George Floyd. And I won't let that happen. Just spoke to Governor Tim Waltz and I told him that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty, we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Thank you. And a lot of people have interpreted that as him really kind of condoning violence, which is incredibly dangerous rhetoric, even if that's not what he intended. So that obviously compounds or complicates an already really horrific, really heartbreaking scene and reality that does not see. I mean, did you see the footage of the precinct on fire? I did. Yeah. And the, I mean, I think part of what is so frustrating is now everyone's got a hot take on the looting and then everyone's got a hot take on someone else having a hot take on the looting. And yeah. part, part of what is so heartbreaking and obviously memes are are super limited and they're not meant to encapsulate like an entire body of work or thought or whatever but you are seeing again in some circles the best of the internet but most certainly the worst of the internet as well and i've seen just some of the most vitriolic comments back and forth i have friends who are pastors in minneapolis and again mm. like i was saying you know earlier in the show like i've tried to really lean on their perspective first like what do you actually seeing or hearing experiencing what's it like to be a clergyman in that city right now. And all the reports I'm getting back for them is that it's, it's as horrific as you think that it is. Um, so I don't know, man, it, it has my head kind of spinning and my heart aching. Cause it just, it feels so dark. And I know that you mentioned that the officer has been uh, arrested. He's in custody being charged with murder. I, I wonder if that will, dissipate some of the 
anguish or if that is just sort of a holding pattern until I don't know. I don't know what to what to predict at this point. And it really it really breaks my heart to see at the very least. I have been encouraged, particularly by how many uh, people in leadership I've seen step out and speak up, often many who have chosen not to. And um, I've been pretty, pretty proud of of that, I think, to see religious leaders in particular, because that's, you know, that's sort of the the lane that I occupy um, saying something, even if it, you know, imperfectly and stumbling to find some kind of answers or a prayer or, or whatever, like seeing seeing leaders, particularly, you know, white leaders really, really try. And I've, I've, I have been encouraged by that. Yeah. I saw a, a pastor buddy of mine. He, he posted on Facebook. He said, if the reason that I'm posting something and he posted the verse that basically just says, hate what is evil. And he said, this is evil. And I said, well, that's pretty succinct. That is well put. Um, I watched a show on ESPN this morning. I'd encourage you guys to look it up. If you can probably find it somewhere, uh, their morning show is called get up. Uh, and they ended the show today. Mike Greenberg is the host, and he had on three African-American guys who are normally on the show. Uh, Jalen Rose, ex-basketball player, uh, Dominique Foxworth, and I'm oh, and Louis Riddick, both of whom are NFL guys, and just let them talk. And, man, it was so powerful. It mm. was just so powerful. And Jalen Rose said something that will really stick with me. He's a uh, – you know him well, obviously, from being from Michigan. He was a Fab Five member at right. the University right. of Michigan. Right. And Jalen Rose said uh, – he talked about how this is, you know, a black man's reality – uh, and he said, I'm so appreciative of uh, my white brothers and sisters who are tweeting, who are doing this. But he said, it's really easy to do that now. We need you there when it's not in the news mm. and when it's really uncomfortable. And I thought to myself, wow, that is like that was poignant to hear. Uh, what does that look like going forward? But at, like you said, a lot of people uh, speaking out and and. You know, it's it's scary to see what went on there overnight. Like you said, the police precinct or there was a target or this or that. But um, I read this. You you put on an article on our link dump here called the, from refinery 29.com. Uh, and it, there was just one line that I went and I underlined it and I read it again. It says, here's a news flash for all the white people unaware of this fact, because it talks about all the things that have happened. It says your black colleagues may seem okay right now, but chances are they're not. Yeah. Uh, and I read that and that was just like, oh, and, uh, you know, I think you've been really good at helping us say, you know, we need to listen, listen well right now and uh, lament and show empathy or uh, empathy is not the right word, but um, yeah, just lament. But, but as you've continued to think about on this, uh, what else can can people be doing uh, who may not be touched? Um, you know, what else could, you know, our white brothers and sisters, how can we be helpful in this? Or what is our next step, do you think? I mean, that is as diverse as people and their experiences. But I think, like you sort of said, and then kind of corrected, which I, I think is interesting. I think empathy is a good starting point, but it's a terrible finish line. Like, I think we yeah. have to move from empathy to ally to advocate like that, that kind of progression is going to feel really uncomfortable for people. But I think what we're seeing shows that it's necessary. And I've, I've said it before, like being a follower of Jesus means forfeiting the luxury of neutrality in the face of injustice. You just don't, you you don't get to be a Jesus person and then, and then look at injustice and say like, ah, that's not really my thing. Well, that's not, that's not really my area. You know, like that is that for me. And again, like the gospel is, Overall of that, I'm not saying that like social justice, 
you know, usurps the gospel at all. I think the gospel is central. That's axial. But I also think that the gospel informs the way that we look at injustice and exploitation. And I think it did for Jesus, too. And so we posted some links yesterday. Maybe we'll, we'll post them again today. A couple of really helpful resources and articles, especially uh, for people who are maybe brand new to this conversation or for the first time dipping a toe in the waters and really practical stuff that I feel like is presented in a way that regardless of where you come from, it doesn't feel shaming, I guess. It just feels like an invitation, like, hey, here's some things you can start doing right now. And uh, I've personally at least found them to be really helpful and also like practical, like, oh, that's okay. That is actually one thing. I I don't live in Minneapolis. I don't have a law degree. I'm not a police officer, but this is something I can start doing. And you mentioned it and I'll mention again, I think listening, decentering our narrative, even just for a moment, like the article Refinery suggests, like asking even just open-endedly how your friends of yeah. color are doing is a really important starting point. And there's a whole, there's a whole lot more I could say, but I'd yeah. head over to the Facebook page and check out those articles. Yeah, there's also one from Christian Post, and I'll leave it at this because some of you might think, oh, I'm tired. You know, what, what to do? And uh, I just love how this ends. It says, evangelicals are pro-life people. And I strongly believe, if nothing else, standing against anything which threatens the life of our brothers and sisters in Christ must also be treated as a pro-life issue. We have all been witnesses to a killing that leaves very little doubt about why it happened. Let's stand for justice hmm. in the name of Jesus. Hmm. That's at the Christian Post. We'll put that one up as well at our Facebook page. Well, coming up next, Christianity Today ran an article about the life of George Floyd, about who he was. And I want to just highlight that, not lose sight of who this man was. We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today on this Friday afternoon. Uh, Before we jump into this article from Christianity Today about George Floyd, uh, Ian is going to share some more about Thrivent. I'll be real brief. So Thrivent.com is the first place I'd recommend you go. They're a wonderful Fortune 500 non-for-profit. Been around for more than a century. I've been a Thrivent member for not quite that long, but like seven or eight years also, you can find out more at thrivent.com slash careers. If you're looking for maybe a career shift, highly encourage you to check that out. Plus, their Facebook page is chock full of all sorts of free webinars and resources, not just money related, by the way. There's things from like how to navigate homeschooling to how to lead during crisis. And uh, I've been super grateful for them personally, but also as a show, they have been an incredible partner and I cannot encourage you enough to go check them out. Awesome. Well, at Christianity Today, Kate Shellnut, we've she's been on our show before, right? I believe so. Uh, She wrote an article that came out today called uh, George Floyd left a gospel legacy in Houston as a person of peace. Big Floyd opened up ministry opportunities in the third ward housing projects. And I just found this, you know, you, this guy, George Floyd is just for 99.99% of the nation is now just kind of defined by what happened to him in his final moments of life. Uh, And so I thought this article was a great way to add some texture uh, and some humanity to who this person was and the tragedy of a life that was lost that certainly didn't need to be. So if you would let me, let me just read some of this. Yeah. Uh, It says the rest of the country knows George Floyd from several minutes of cell phone footage captured during his final hours. But in Houston's third ward, they know Floyd for how he lived for decades a mentor to a generation of young men and a, quote, person of peace ushering ministries into the area. Uh, 
Before moving to Minneapolis for a job opportunity through a Christian work program, the 46-year-old spent almost his entire life in the historically black Third Ward, where he was called Big Floyd and regarded as, quote, an OG, a de facto community leader and elder statesman, his ministry partner said. Floyd spoke of breaking the cycle of violence he saw among young people and used his influence to bring outside ministries to the area to do discipleship and outreach, particularly in the Cooney Homes housing project, locally known as The Bricks. Hmm. George Floyd was a person of peace sent from the Lord that helped the gospel to go forward in a place that I never lived in, uh, said a pastor, Pastor uh, Patrick uh, Ninguolo, a pastor of Resurrection Houston. The platform for us to reach that neighborhood and hundreds of people we reached out to through that time and up to now was built on the backs of people like Floyd, he said. Uh, fellow leaders, uh, along with the pastor, met Floyd in 2010. He was a towering six foot six guest who showed up at a benefit concert they put on for the third award. From the start, Big Floyd made his priorities clear. He said, I love what you're doing. The neighborhood needs it. The community needs it. And if you all about if you are all about God's business, then that's my business. He said, whatever y'all need, wherever you guys get, wherever y'all go, tell them Floyd said, you're all good. I got y'all. The church expanded its involvement in the area, holding Bible studies and helping out with groceries and rides to doctor's appointments. Floyd didn't just provide access and protection. He lent a helping hand as the church put on services, three on three basketball tournaments, barbecues and community baptisms. He helped push the baptism tub over, understanding that people were going to make a decision of faith and get baptized right there in the middle of the projects. He thought that was amazing. Mm. The things that he would say to young men always referenced that God trumps street culture. I think he wanted to see young men put guns down and have Jesus instead of the street and have Jesus in the streets. More than 50 people have been killed over the past several years in what authorities describe as gang warfare spreading through the Third Ward and Southeast Houston. It can be hard for outsiders to gain trust or even ensure safety coming in on their own. The stamp of approval granted from a figure like Floyd is crucial for urban discipleship. His faith was a heart for the Third Ward that was radically changed by the gospel. And his mission was empowering other believers to be able to come in and push that gospel forth. There are things that Floyd did for us that we'll never know until the other side of eternity. There were times where we'd have church at the bricks until 3 p.m. And by 4.30, they're firing shots right at the basketball courts. Uh, tributes and prayers of lament from fellow Christians rolled in all over social media uh, popular Christian hip-hop artist Propaganda reposted the reflections from several artists who knew Floyd, saying he was a friend of many friends. Floyd moved to Minnesota around 2018. His family told the Houston Chronicle he was there for a discipleship program, including job placement. Mm. A Bricks boy do just doesn't leave the Third Ward and go to Minnesota, he said. Floyd told Dunn he had plans to return this summer, though he never made it home. He'll be immortalized in the Third Ward community forever, Lillard said. His mural will be on the walls. Every young man and youth growing up will know George Floyd. The people who knew him personally will remember him as a positive light. Guys from the streets look to him like, man, if he can change his life, I can change mine. So I'm going to stop there. It goes on for a while longer. Maybe we'll pick some of it up. Uh, much more than... Uh, than the guy that we've seen on the streets uh, getting choked by a police officer, right? Like his life was one 
uh, that will make a difference in the way he died. But what I want, the reason I wanted to read that is that's a guy's life uh, who that's going to resonate also because of the way he lived to hear the difference that were was made in Southeast Houston through this man is really remarkable. What do you guess will be the, uh, the feedback, the commentary on, on this particular article? It's at Christianity today. And as we know, Christians, have historically, it's not a new thing, have been divided on issues of race and racism in particular. What, what do you guess or presume will be some of the response to the CT article? Um, I think it'll be positive. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. I think people will say, uh, man, there's so much in there about the impressiveness of his life uh, I'm sure there will be people asking, why did he get arrested? Why was he getting pulled out of a car if he was such like this? You know, I think there are people who like to not like to, but who feel the need to um, try to uh, push down somebody's reputation when when these incidents happen because it makes it more their fault or they deserved it. But I think people are really going to need to wrestle with this like this is uh, – this is a very impressive person from everybody who's talked in here. So I would have to think, I would hope that it's going to be positive. What do you think? Uh, my guess is it'll be positive. I'm I'm curious if you think, is there any, um, any sense that if this actually wasn't the story of George Floyd, like if we found out, not that he was a criminal, but he was just an average guy that didn't, you know, really give back much and was sort of just a normal would that change the narrative going forward in your mind for the vast majority of people, maybe Christians in particular? Uh, well, it might change the narrative a little bit that that he's for Christians because he's clearly a man of faith who was doing this outreach work and this and that. I think um, all too often what happens in these situations, it happened with Ahmaud Arbery, right, is yeah. uh, what's in their background that made it that maybe they didn't deserve to die, obviously, but, but they put themselves in some sort of situation. And, and so a story like this, that's never okay, but a story, nobody ever deserves to die. But um, a story like this goes, man, uh, I'm going to put this sloppily, but man, this guy really didn't deserve like this. This was a good guy who did, who, who deserves his life deserves to be held up and admired, not just his death, right? Like he's not, he's so much more than his death. He's, uh, he did great things. He was part of transforming a community. And so I think that adds it's going to add not to the tragedy, but it adds to the weight of the tragedy. I think people are going to go, oh, my gosh, like this is much more of this is so much uh, deep loss that I, that I hadn't really thought about. It doesn't make it a deeper loss for his family or anything. But, you know, for us to know of his life, I think, makes it that much more of a personal tragedy, I think. OK, so I'd like to formally request that we talk more about that next week then, because. I I think there's some problems in what you just said, in particular, to say that, well, because of how good his life was, this is this is really a tragedy or this is I think there's some underlying issues there that I want to be really careful that, especially for Christians to not say like, oh, well, we can latch on to this story and this. I feel more comfortable posting against this because I know he was a Christian or because I know he did good things, but maybe remained more silent in the face of the same kinds of injustice because, well, I'm not really sure how shady that guy's character was or his background, that to me is a problem. And I think uh, I think it's an interesting one. I think, again, I know the purpose of the segment was to celebrate this guy's life, and I think that's certainly 
that's good. And we should, we should do that. Yeah. I want to be really intentional and careful. Maybe we'll talk about it next week about some of the underlying, like, well, but this one's really a tragedy because of all the stuff he gave back to or the ways that he lived. I think that thinking can be really dangerous. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that it's more of a tragedy. If that's how it came across, that's not what I meant to say. I don't think it's more of a tragedy. I think it personalizes the tragedy uh, as opposed to. Uh, but, yeah, I'd love to have that conversation more because I, I don't okay. think it makes it more tragic than it, it's it's fully tragic on its own. <laughs> but um, for sure. Uh, well, coming up next, we're going to talk about something called deep fakes. Uh, an article from Forbes that is uh, really interesting. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, glad to have you with us. And uh, I want to tell you about something uh, that the station is doing that we've been telling you about throughout this pandemic. Because during the, glo- uh, the coronavirus pandemic, There's a lot of you who've had to close your businesses and we're sad for you, but there's also some of you who have uh, tried to keep your businesses open. You're trying to help uh, people in your community and we want to help you get that word out. So right now, uh, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. That's 1160hope.com slash open for business. Going to fill out a brief form there and we at the station are going to compile all of that information and get it out so hopefully people can come. Uh, and help out your business. It's totally free. Uh, we're not asking anything from you. So go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Did you ad lib that one? A little bit, a little bit. I had it up and then I went, oh, wait, he wanted me to ad lib and I'm going for it. So change it up. You don't have to do everything I ask for. That's not. No, that was more of a challenge. It was more not, of a challenge. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Yep. That's, you need some kind of competition right now with all the uh, I do. sports. It doesn't hurt it doesn't hurt my back, so I can do it right there. So I understand. <laughs> hey, where can people find us, Ian? All over the interwebs. Where can they get us? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Just all over the interwebs. Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Plus, we're podcasted and subscribing, rating, reviewing, all that stuff. Tweeting, resharing, reposting, commenting a friend or a stranger, all, all of that. I don't know that we can express enough how much that helps and also how much we appreciate it. So if there's ever a particular day or a segment or an article that uh, resonates, if you wouldn't mind helping us out, we would really, really appreciate that. Absolutely. We're really thankful for those of you who have already done that. Uh, At Forbes, at Forbes, this is the name of the article. Deep fakes are going to wreak havoc on society. We are not prepared. So I read that, uh, that headline and was immediately terrified. (laughs) So, right. This guy, uh, the author is uh, named Rob Toes, uh, and he wrote this. Last month during ESPN's hit documentary, The Last Dance, State Farm debuted a TV commercial that has become one of the most widely discussed ads in recent memory. It, it appeared to show footage from 1998 of an ESPN analyst shockingly accurate predictions about the year 2020. As it turned out, the clip was not genuine. It was generated using cutting-edge AI. The commercial surprised, amused, and delighted viewers. What viewers should have felt, though, was deep concern. Oh, boy. The State Farm ad was a benign example of an important and dangerous new phenomenon in AI called deepfakes. Deepfake technology enables anyone with a computer and an Internet connection to create realistic-looking photos and videos of people saying and doing things that they did not actually say or do. 
a combination of phrases deep learning and fake deep fakes first emerged on the internet in 2017 uh, several deep fake videos have gone viral recently giving millions around the world their first taste of this new technology president obama using an expletive to describe president trump mark zuckerberg admitting that tr- facebook's true goal is to m- manipulate and exploit its users bill hader morphing into al pacino on a late night talk show so we'll stop there this stuff i've heard of this before but this stuff is terrifying what what do you find most terrifying about it oh the if you thought like there was manipulation say going on in uh elections say uh through just facebook ads and other things what about when they can create the other person saying something that they never said right and and how does that person ever walk that back and if if they could do that say in political ads what about you know, where does that end? You know, why? How about somebody in your church creates something that Ian Simpkins said online and you're like, yeah. I didn't say that uh, or a teacher or wherever you could see this going in so many crazy directions. And it kind of feels like what this article says is the cat's out of the bag already. So how do you roll this back at all? Well, I think there's always going to be experts in every field. Like, obviously, Photoshop has been around for a long time. And yep. people, friends of mine who are graphic designers professionally, for example, they they have tools to to be able to identify a photo that's been doctored or photoshopped in some way. Now we don't all have that. I think it will going forward. It will require a greater level of dependency and trust on the people who are the verified experts. I don't know how you verify. I mean, because it's yeah. again Photoshop photos, doctored photos is that's not a new phenomenon. But the and the article kind of goes on to talk about how quickly. This technology yeah. has advanced, which is part of what makes it so scary. I'm not scared that someone's going to make one of me. Like, who cares? No. Who cares? Like, I, you know, I'm not anyone's target, I don't think. But like what you were saying, and again, most of the, I mean, the State Farm ad, the author describes as benign. But Zuckerberg saying that or Obama saying that, there's yeah. been a number of ones where it's been like women in really compromising positions and then someone else's face added. That's super, super harmful and dangerous. So, again, the, the worry isn't like, oh, no, what if someone makes one of me? Sure, but like sure. that our ability for the average Joe citizen to be able to accurately decipher what is real and what's been doctored, I think that's going to go down. And that that is a little bit frightening. Yeah, it says here, uh, technology is improving at a breathtaking pace. Experts predict that deep fakes will be indistinguishable from real images before long. And so this author says, today we stand at an inflection point in the months and years ahead. Deep fakes threaten to grow from an internet oddity to a widely destructive political and social force. And we need to be prepared for it. Uh, so some background to it. It says the first use case to which deep fake technology has been widely applied and is often the case uh, is pornography. As of September of 2019, 96% of deep fake videos online were pornographic. Oh, wow. uh, but it said from the dark corners of the web, the use of deep fakes has begun to spread to the political sphere where the potential for mayhem is even greater. Like, just think about it. Like uh, one of these candidates coming up here is, say, down five points in mid to late October. Right. Uh, and they're like, how can we ever make it up? And they've got all these smart people on their side. And all of a sudden a, a video comes out of their other of their opponent saying something that is out of control, like just off the boards. And, and how does that other opponent, how does that other candidate uh, 
get out from under that in two weeks right before you could really see something like this swinging an election uh being used in business oh man i think it's really crazy and so i don't know what the answer is but think about the number of times you and i have talked about how hard it is to uh even decipher what's true and what's not in an article on twitter or with this that now when we can't even really trust the videos we're watching uh, <laughs> or the news report ah yeah, this this could get this could add a whole nother layer to that. Well, I don't I don't even think that it's I mean, it is obviously tough at times to determine whether or not an article is factual. I think the thing that maybe I'm a little more interested in talking about is people's unwillingness to do the research. Like we've talked multiple times on the show that even even with resources available right now to decipher whether or not an article that I'm considering sharing is factual or not. People still aren't even doing that. Like how much more so will the vast majority of people be likely to believe something like, well, no, no sense in fact checking that. It's a video. Like it's, it's clear. It's clear as day. It's right. It's right there in front of me. We are already not seeing a whole lot of that. Yeah. When it comes to verifying the legitimacy of the written word, I can only imagine this is going to make it harder for, for people to. And again, obviously, I'm painting with massively broad brushes. You know, yep. obviously, there are a lot of people, a lot of people listening right now, a lot of people in the world who are diligent with fact checking and finding sources and not spreading false information. But it's a real problem. And we've talked before, too, that like Christians don't tend to be a whole lot better necessarily, statistically speaking, at verifying content before we share it. So something like this, that that poses a real threat, not just to like the person's credibility, but also I think maybe maybe we'll talk about this later, like Christian credibility, you know, and that's, yeah. that's, that's another aspect that we need to really, really consider. Man. And, and near the end of this article, you guys should read this at our Facebook page. There's this whole other thing that I hadn't thought of. It's that they say, whether the video was real is almost beside the point. It says people are already using the fact that deep fakes exist to discredit genuine video evidence that even though there's footage of you doing or saying something, you could say it was a deep fake and it's very hard to prove otherwise and that is going to make for something that this person calls reality apathy. I hadn't even thought of that. This whole concept of fake news uh, or whatever now, now deep fakes. Now, if you legitimately did do something and were caught on video, can right. you claim that it was? A, oh, my gosh, this is this is something. Well, so, and, and even if you have like the money and resources to have one created, right? Like I yeah. I think the number one docuseries on Netflix right now is about Jeffrey Epstein and. I just watched one episode and it's horrifying how much he was able to manipulate right? simply, be simply because of his wealth and power. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. So anyway, this is a fascinating article. Uh, if you, you should read it at Forbes, you could read it on our Facebook page at the Common Good Radio Show. We would love to know what you think. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show. We're going to end the week the way we end every week uh, with interweb insanity. That's coming up next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and that music can only mean one thing. It's the end of the show, the end of the week. Interweb insanity. Crazy stories from the internet that our executive producer, Keith Conrad, has found. And Ian, I'm particularly worried today because this is his last one before getting married this weekend. So he either is going to go out with a bang or maybe maybe uh, he's feeling a little softer today and these are not going to be so bad. I'm not sure. It's going to go one of two ways, though. 
See, and I, I wasn't going to link his wedding weekend to this segment at all. I was just going to say congratulations to Keith and Misty. We're really excited for you guys. <laughs> we were going to end that way, but yes, that's true. <laughs> but your go-to was like, gosh, I'm not sure how this uh, marriage is going to affect this closing segment of our Uh-oh. show. I think he's ready to go guns blazing on us here. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, either way, congratulations. We love you guys, and uh, we're super, super excited for you. All right, this first one is out of Florida, and the headline kind of says it all. Man accused... <laughs> of kicking chicken like, quote, a football player would kick a field goal. A Florida man who was upset about the noise a chicken was making grabbed the bird and kicked it like a football player would kick a field goal, according to the Monroe County Sheriff's Office. Deputies said 43-year-old... Okay, you're 43. Come on, man. Nicholas Kevin Chu's girlfriend called them on March 22nd to report that he had kicked a chicken while they were arguing, and she was worried the bird's leg was broken. Chu reported admitted to kicking the chicken out of his way because he was upset with the bird's noises record show, but it was a separate witness who said the suspect kicked the animal with the same amount of force that an athlete would use. What's the matter, Colonel Sanders? Chicken? Yeah, that's an ugly one. That's an ugly one. Yeah, geez, Louise, man. All right, next one's out of Canada. Guy's online order turns up eight years late. (laughs) (laughs) When the fifth season of Mad Men aired in 2012, Canadian man Elliot uh, Berenstein decided to try out the Don Draper look and ordered some hair cream online. It arrived three weeks ago. (laughs) Berenstein says he was surprised when a package from online retailer well.ca turned up on his doorstep May 6th. I was very confused because I hadn't ordered anything from them in a while, he told the CBC. And then I remembered one time about eight years ago, I ordered something from them. He said he decided against using the Brill Cream after he opened the tube. It was bright yellow. When I Googled it, it was supposed to be pretty white, so I didn't try it out. When you control the mail, you control information. That feels like that could be a Bernstein Bears book, right? (laughs) All right, out of Georgia, woman, brother, okay, after turtle strikes car window. How does that happen? A Savannah woman and her brother were not seriously hurt after a turtle launched through the air and became lodged into the windshield of a car they were in. Holy cow. Mm. Tanya Lark told WAS, nope, WSAV-TV, she was driving in Savannah this month when she saw an object that looked like a brick quickly approaching her car. Lark began to slow down as the reptile smashed into the glass and was left hanging halfway uh, halfway in and halfway out of the window, according to her account. Lark's brother, Kevin Grant, was in the passenger seat and shielded his face as the animal collided with the windshield and sent shards of glass flying toward them. If I don't save the wheat turtle, you will! I did see a picture of this. It's terrifying. <laughs> oh, we know if the turtle survived? I believe it did. Don't save me from the wheat turtles! They were too quick for me! Oh, that's amazing. Uh, Next one's out of Massachusetts. A 103-year-old woman beats coronavirus, celebrates with a Bud Light. (laughs) Not a a corona? Um. No. Shelly Gunn describes her Polish grandmother, Jeannie Stena, as having a feisty spirit. Uh, Stena certainly displayed the spirit as the 103-year-old woman recently survived the bout with the coronavirus three weeks ago. Uh, Gunn said Stania was the first to test positive for coronavirus in her nursing home. She had a low-grade fever and was moved to a separate ward. She didn't really grasp or understand COVID-19, Gunn said, but did know she was very ill. Gunn said there was always a staff member by her side. As Stania's condition worsened, Gunn said they called to say what they thought were their final goodbyes. She thanked Stania for everything she had done for her. When Shelley's husband, Adam Gunn, asked whether Stania was ready to go to heaven, (laughs) she replied... Uh, heck yes. 
But on May 13th, Gunn said she got good news. Dania had recovered. This feisty old Polish grandmother of ours officially beat the coronavirus. We're very thankful. The staff gave Stania an ice-cold Bud Light to celebrate, something she loved but hadn't had in a long time. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Okay, correction, she did not say heck yes. Just, I didn't know what we're allowed to say on just, the air. Just, just, I had a moment there. Just for credibility. Yeah, well, this last headline is going to give me one of those moments, too. Out of Florida, <laughs> man breaks into bank, heats up Hot Pocket, tells news getting arrested it was effing worth it. So <laughs> this is a cool guy. Uh, an unidentified man broke into a Cholus View bank on Wednesday morning so he could heat up his Hot Pocket. And when the news interviewed the suspect as he was being arrested, he said, it was worth it. For a Hot Pocket, heck yeah, which is not actually... <laughs> Heck yeah at all. According to ABC 10 News, at around 3.30 a.m., San Diego police were dispatched to the Wells Fargo Bank branch after a burglar alarm had gone off. Responding officers arrived to find a broken window near the bank's drive through The alarm company told police as surveillance cameras inside the branch captured a man inside a break room and using the microwave. After about an hour, officers broke through the front door and located the man inside. After about an hour? What? As officers took him outside and arrested him, the man told 10 News, breaking news tracker... That had entered the bank just so he could microwave his hot pockets. Try the hot pockets; they're breathtaking. Oh, I have a hot pocket I want to microwave. I'm going to break into a bank. <laughs> Mostly baffled, it took them an hour to get there. That is a little disturbing as well. Well, we're glad that you joined us all week here. Uh, again, congratulations to our executive producer Keith uh, and his lovely bride to be Misty. We're excited for you guys. Have a great wedding weekend. And we all we hope you all have a great weekend. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We'll be back on Monday. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.